This is an ABC podcast. Indonesia's award-winning poet, Gunavan Muhammad, once said that Jakarta has a congenital disease. It's a capital that was, was never seriously planned for, simply an accumulation of growth that became a city. And we're familiar with its ills. Jakarta, it's, it's polluted, congested and tired. And then there's the water. <laughs> there's simultaneously too much and too little. Only about a quarter of residents here have access to piped water. The rest pump it out of the ground. That causes land subsidence, which in simple terms is causing Jakarta to sink. But despite all of its challenges, why do some 30 million people continue to put their faith in Jakarta? Let's find out. Attention passengers. This is Return Ticket, the show that transports you to familiar places done differently. In this series, we'll live with no limits in Monaco, find reality in Fiji, and we'll certainly not be sleepless in Seattle. But now, keeping faith in Jakarta. I'm now in central Jakarta. It's a place that bears all the hallmarks of, of the pomp of a capital city. But in a, in a city with such a long history, a, a place like this is also a palimpsest, a built environment where history has been written over time and time again. Before it was Jakarta, this place was Sunda Kalapa, then Jayakarta and, and Batavia. Beside me, there's the colossal Merdeka Square. It's five times bigger than Beijing's Tiananmen Square. And of course, Merdeka is the Indonesian word for independence. But I'm coming up to a place that sought to show Indonesia's post-colonial identity to the world. You might have guessed its name. It's the Independence Mosque or the Istiklal Mosque. Istiklal meaning the Arabic word for independence. My friend Amanda Ahmadi has kindly agreed to meet me here to show me round. She's an expert in Indonesian and Southeast Asian architecture, the perfect person to have around in these parts. Amanda sent me a text and says she's waiting on the other side of the minaret. The, the, the sheer size of this mosque. Amanda, hi. Thanks for meeting me here today. Mosques in this extraordinary place. How many mosques in Jakarta alone do you think? Well, no one actually tried to count it because it's quite impossible. Every day a new mosque is being constructed for the city. And each of them have a different story to tell. Well, let's begin with this one right here. But tell me about the Istiklal Mosque. Well, this mosque is the largest in Southeast Asia, built in modern architectural style. It was designed by a Christian architect, Friedrich Silaban, who studied in the Netherlands. 
And the design was chosen by the first president of Indonesia, Sukarno, to declare Indonesia is a country that is modern. It has one of the largest Muslim population in the world then, but definitely today. But it is also not an Islamic state. It's time for a brief history lesson, so indulge me. Let's talk about Indonesia's distinct relationship with faith, theism, or belief in a god. It's woven into the country's constitution. And while that constitution also recognises other religions like Christianity and Buddhism, Islam is the main show in town. At the last count, there were some 230 million Muslims in this country, which makes up about 86.7% of Indonesia's total population. And this goes back a bit. It's understood that Islamic sultanates were established in the Indonesian island of Sumatra from at least the 13th century. Before that, well, the islands that now make Indonesia were home to, to Hindu Buddhist faiths. And, and you can trace that history in well, Bali, for example. But with more trade and people-to-people links, a, a degree of acculturation occurred across the archipelago. In other words, there was a, a gentle, largely, introduction to Islam. And you can see that reflected in Jakarta's oldest mosque. Amanda? We call it Mosque in Chilinching. Chilinching is the location in the northern part of the city. And it shows this acculturation of the Hindu Buddhist structure. Pre-Hindu Buddhist architecture, you, you could perhaps relate to what you see in today's Bali. This pavilion in a square-based shape. And that was what the building used to be. And then the introduction of Islam at this minaret element into the site. So this is about juxtaposition and then collage of architectural elements. Well, Amanda, if, we, if we're talking about juxtaposition, I'm reminded of President Zahato who took over from the, the late 60s. How did mosques fare under his rule? It shifted immediately the moment Suharto took power. And if you recall the transition between Sukarno and Suharto, you can't describe it as a peaceful transition. Suharto's move is to adopt the so-called oriental idea of Islam. And his idea is to kind of detach Islamic identity of Indonesia from the religious and regional politics within the country and somehow associate Islam with some sort of ancient Asian culture. Well, the the interesting tension in that architectural language is public perception of what a mosque might be. Has that changed as well? Yes. Then you start seeing more and more adaptation of you know the onion dome uh, this mogul islamic architectural style from india from uh, the middle east and it's de-associate mosque from to some extent the cultural history of of indonesia what a rich tale Amanda. thank you I, I need to process these thoughts a quiet perhaps almost reflective and prayerful space where might i find such a thing in this city <laughs> 3,000 examples, perhaps. Yes, at the end of the day, this is a city with almost 30 million population and 500 years history. Every mosque tells a story of the city. When you think 
about Jakarta as one giant palimpsest that you can see how, historically speaking, that was taken rather literally here. Back when Jakarta was Batavia, the city was described as the Queen of the Orient, a place revered for its canals and wide boulevards. And that, of course, was until the Dutch realised that the canals were stagnant, which brought in tropical diseases like malaria. So the Queen then pulled up stumps in search of higher ground. The Europeans headed south, out to where Merica Square is today. Out was the old disease canal city. In came Villa Country. It's a habit Jakarta hasn't shaken because the Indonesian government is repeating history. Only this time, well, they're moving from this city completely. By the middle of this century, the Indonesian government will reside in a city called Nusantara. It's isolated on the eastern side of Indonesian Borneo. It's a purpose-built capital, tipped to be home to about 1.9 million people by 2045. Uh, that's a sliver, of course, of Jakarta's 30 million. I should add that. It's an idea that's been a long time coming. In the new city, well, it's hoped to be a panacea of sorts for Jakarta's long-standing issues with flooding and sinking. And to understand just how severe these problems are, well, I called my friend Hadi Prianto. Earlier today, for a spot of help, he is a climate and energy campaigner at Greenpeace Indonesia. He'll, he'll be able to talk me through this in simple terms. Hang on, give me a sec. Hi, hi. Uh, look, just a couple of quick questions from me, if I may. Yeah, hello, Jonathan. How are you? Uh, look, I'm great. So this, for Jakarta, there are, there are, there are combinations of issues, aren't there, of, of rising seas and, and sinking land. How does that come together? Jakarta's land subsides for about 20 to 40 centimetres per year. Even some places in Jakarta have been subsiding for one to two metres below sea level. Groundwater extraction is unbelievably huge as many more shopping centers, office building, apartment, hotel are continuously being built. But the freshwater pipeline system are only covered around 30 to 40% of area of Jakarta and too much concrete uh, close to the soil surface, making the water from the mountain just flow rapidly into the river and ends into the oceans. Is it the depletion of that groundwater that's caused the subsidence? Yeah. Okay. What is government doing to help to solve this issue? Yeah, actually, the provincial and central government have been planning to build a giant seawall across the northern coast. They built like for 37 kilometers inland and five meter hits. It costs about 40 billion US dollars. It solved the problem temporarily, but Jakarta thinking it will be inevitable. We need solution to prevent the climate crisis and land subsidence. A lot there to think about, Hardy. And, and I think the person I'm about to meet well, might have some solutions. Thanks for the chat. Uh, we'll, we'll meet later. back over the road to Merdeka Square to figure out what's going to happen to Jakarta. 
a century's worth of buildings and structures that have performed the role of capital. To answer that, Amanda told me I should meet Setiadi Sapandi. Uh, he's an Indonesian architectural historian, and he told me to meet him under the, the square's huge central obelisk, which is Indonesia's national monument. Setiadi, hi. Here we are in, in the middle of, of Jakarta. Thanks for, thanks for meeting me here. Hi, hi, hi. It's my pleasure. Jonathan. Your book, uh, Gerak Jakarta, you, you say in the book that it's, um, <laughs> just, these are strong words, more frequently remembered as an unpleasant, dirty and dangerous place, hated and avoided even by its own citizens. Yeah, it was. It was actually, yeah. Jakarta was like that bad because it's not, pro- never really properly planned until uh, the, the early 20th century. has been grown uh, in piecemeal, organically, but somehow it's also uh, systematically planned in terms of certain areas. So it's like patches of development and never really considered as a whole. So the planning of Jakarta, the, the holistic planning of Jakarta has only begun probably after the 1960s. Jakarta is, is always expanding and trying to expand as far as possible. <laughs> But perhaps now it has, has reached the limits of that expansion. Indeed, yes, because the, of course we know we know about it. We read about it that Jakarta is sinking, and Jakarta is moving. Jakarta is moving. Uh, Jakarta is not moving anywhere, but the, the <laughs> government is moving. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> what will that do to Jakarta? What 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 will happen when Jakarta no longer becomes the, the centre of, of government and business? I think it's a good chance for Jakarta, for myself. It's, uh, Jakarta has been relieved from its burden to host the, the government. But I think for, for Jakarta in the future, we'll more have a chance to become a real city and to become a, a business or, or a commercial centre. I wonder what that will mean, a real city, and how, how, how will that change the nature of the Jakarta that you see today? I'm like any other uh, uh, people in, in Indonesia. It's a, a split between being optimistic or pessimistic. But f- for sure that Jakarta, in some part of it at least, it's developing in a very good direction. But the burden is actually uh, how Jakarta can develop while maintaining its uh, fairness to all the citizens. Because so, so far, we can only see the, the gap between the rich, the haves, and the not-haves has been increasing. And of course, Jakarta also has to, to be developed as the will of the people, the citizens, or whoever work in it, live in it, born in it, and die in it. Setiadi, thank you, and, and that speaks well for the city and its future. Correct, yeah. <laughs> Wonderful to talk. you to Indonesia's new capital, Nusantara, yet. Right now, it's it's all cleared rainforest, construction sites, dirt roads, the, the, the first tranche of about 60,000 civil servants are due to move over in 2025. So, place will be a bit like well, Canberra in 1958. <laughs> in fact, I'm pretty sure our national capital has, has been cited as an influence. Indonesia, are you are you sure? But hey, 
Canberra is coming into its own. It only took about a century. And like our planned capital, Indonesia's one will be, will be pleasant, green, calm. Everything that Jakarta is not. But the chaos of Jakarta... It, breeds its own kind of happy accidents and I'm in search of them because when you step away from the stage-managed ceremonial parts of this place, we get to see life as it is. I've got just the place for this, the mall. Stay with me. In this concrete jungle, malls have become Jakarta's stand-ins for public space. While Jakarta's planning laws reserve 30% of land for green space, only about 10% exists in reality. So that's why malls have stepped in. There are about 170 at the last count, catering to a, a range of demographics. And in a a secular and pious city, malls here serve as both public and and prayerful places, but more on that in a bit. Right now, I'm headed to the Pondok Indah Mall, a ritzy place, serving the suburb around it of the same name. It's been dubbed the Beverly Hills of Indonesia. I'm heading there to meet... Sandra Hamid, a a cultural anthropologist who has a wealth of knowledge about Indonesian Islam. Sandra, so much cooler in here. My my sweat is drying off here at the air-conditioned mall. (laughs) This is a comfortable place. Well, there's a thing in Indonesia, um, it's called masuk angin. It is a, a situation in which the bad wind gets into you. And one of the ways to catch that is if you have wet or damp clothes on you and then you get into air condition. So you're gonna, you want to be careful. <laughs> what if you go catch my death? <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to catch the bad wind. Sandra, I'm, I'm always amazed at the obligation in Islam to pray five times a day how does that how does that fit into life it's just something that we have to do it's one of the uh, five basic obligations that you have to do to be considered a good muslim so you do it early in the morning right before the sun rises and then in indonesia because we're in the equator it's actually very easy so one (laughs) really after midday which is 12 o'clock right it it works like clockwork yes and then um then there's another one at about three o'clock and then there's another one about six o'clock and then immediately after that which is uh right after the sun's already set contrary to popular belief um there are always ways to make it work (laughs) if you're far away from home there's a calculation as to how far that is instead of doing four at 12 o'clock and four at three o'clock you can do two two you put it together, put them together, and then you shorten it. So there are ways to, to make it work for you. And then in, in, in a modern city like Jakarta too, the, the way in which that, the, the times of prayer move from, from private to public space, uh, and, and into spaces like this, into spaces like a mall. Yeah, 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 yeah. So in a more luxurious mall like this, it would be very easy uh, for somebody like me to in the middle of lunch for example or in the middle of coffee would say to my friend or say you know excuse me uh, go to the mushola which is not a mosque but a praying room 
And in the luxury, it's more like this. Everything is clean. Everything is very comfortable, very convenient. Um, it fits in around your day. Absolutely. And, <laughs> you know, the mall is very clever, right? They want you to stay. And so they have to give you facilities to be able to stay. And this was not used to be like this in the past. Oh, how was it in the past? Tell me about that. I mean, I wouldn't go near it. When I was in university, I... Going to pray in the musola was was not nice <laughs> because mm. it's hot, it's damp. It's um, you have to understand also like before you pray, you have to clean yourself, right? With water, yep. you purify yourself. You do a wudu, we call it, and you'd be wet. And if there's no uh, towel to actually uh, dry your feet, for example, you would step in to the musola. And imagine that many people step into the musola with, with wet feet and it'll make the carpet really damp. And you can imagine without air condition in a damp you know, area, it's just not nice. Now, one of the other things, of course, that, that malls have, apart from musalas and air conditioning, is, is food courts. And that makes me think about Ramadan. The food court in the mall, uh, when, when fasting finishes, must be a very active, hectic place. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. Um, people will first break the fast with water or something sweet. Sugar consumption during Ramadan is always very high <laughs> because your sugar is low, right? You've been fasting for uh, um, many hours. And then uh, you would go to Musala to do your prayer and then you go back and then you continue eating and then food court is, is always very busy. The thing is also you have to remember in Jakarta, the traffic is really, really bad, right? And so it's actually a, it has to be a conscious decision to actually be able to be home for breaking the fast. Now, I haven't been fasting, Sandra, but this talk of food, I'm... It's making me hungry. <laughs> what, 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 what do you think? What, if, what would you recommend I have right now for a, for a spot of lunch? Uh, um, it doesn't have to be Middle Eastern to be Islamic, right? So um, there's a good Javanese food in one of the stalls in the food court. So, yeah, you can have Javanese food. Sounds like a plan. And th thank you. Thank you for showing me around and in enjoy your shopping afternoon. Thank you. Enjoy. So I've made it down to the food court. What a variety of choice. You can sample from uh, Japan, Java, Taiwan, Australia, if a particular Australian juice franchise is your thing. Uh, but I thought I would try Javanese fast food, a novel creation. For me, the Nuzzy Box, that was just the ticket, like like Nuzzy Goring, but in a bento box form. Mm-mm. And that culinary convenience, I think, can be, can be expanded to this, this whole building. I get why the mall is a natural antidote to Jakarta's long-standing problems. This is order in a place of so much heaving motion and chaos. Oh, and there we go. It's prayer time. I couldn't find any minarets on my way in, but, but worshippers passing me have placed their faith in this place all the same. And I get that too. It, it's a marvel of modern Indonesia, really. 
is a place where you can be part of a, a globalised consumer culture while still professing your, your piety, all in the one building. It's a temple to, to capital and to religion. But not everyone in this city has the means to get here or to participate in the consumption that these buildings promote. And for this capital, which supposedly can't shake its congenital disease, well, that hasn't stopped the more than 30 million people calling this place home. Now, that's a whole lot of faith. You've been listening to Return Ticket. You heard from Amanda Akmadi, Hardy Prianto, Setiadi Sapandi and Sandra Hamid. Producers are Alan Whedon and Rachel Bongiorno. Special thanks to Hayley Crane, Barbara Hagen and Max Walden. Technical production and musical theme by Brendan O'Neill. Executive producer is Rhiannon Brown. Tell your friends how much you've enjoyed it. Till next time, I'm Jonathan Green. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC listener. Earshot is back with a new season called Follow Me. Meet a doomsday cult leader. When these chastisements happened, hell would be opened and all the devils would walk the earth. I mean, loving the cure now. Diehard music fans. At the tender age of 52. (laughs) And a mother trying to keep her daughter safe and sane online. Restricting and banning just hasn't worked. Come follow Earshot on the ABC Listen app. What path can I follow to not feel this anymore?